Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Anxious, overly concerned, feelings of despair and loneliness. Haven't we all felt a little out of balance for the past five months? Are we equipped to or unequipped to talk about the pain and loss and upheaval brought on by the global pandemic, COVID-19? How does COVID-19 affect our mental health? Today on the Think Humanities podcast, we'll explore those questions and more with Melinda Moore, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Eastern Kentucky University and the co-lead of the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention's Faith Communities Task Force, and Michelle M. Martell, Professor and Director of Clinical Training in the Psychology Department at the University of Kentucky. And Dr. Martell, let me ask you, first of all, am I pronouncing your your last name correctly? Exactly right. Good. Well, thank you both for being with us uh, to discuss um, an important topic. Uh, so let me just begin with uh, what I uh, began with and, and ask you, is there something about this period uh, that we're living through that, that uh, either equip us or we find ourselves unequipped to deal with um, the, the pain, the loss, uh, the upheaval that occurs uh, through the global pandemic? So Dr. Martel, why don't you begin? Yeah, I'll just say I um, am a professor um, and I also do a little bit of private practice work as well, mostly with teenagers. And uh, I can say from working with them and from their working with their parents and from being a parent myself as well, a teenagers and a toddler, that this period is really unlike, I think, anything we've experienced before, um, partly or I would say in large part because of the uncertainty, uh, you know, it, it really makes it difficult to plan, to think ahead, to, to kind of figure out what are good coping mechanisms. Um, you alluded to the fact that, you know, grief and loss. I mean, I think people are experiencing that right now, um, no matter what age your, your age group you're in. Um, and, you know, when you're grieving, uh, it's not just a sense of sadness and loss, although that's there too. I mean, you also will cycle through other emotions like anger, denial, bargaining. Um, and it's not a, a linear kind of sequential process. It's those things are all there. So I always like to tell people, you know, whatever you're feeling is normal. No, you're not alone. Um, know that there are a lot of resources out there, um, both professional and um, otherwise, um, and seek help from others when you need it. Dr. Moore, you also are in private practice, and uh, so in what you're observing, and then also at the university level in in what you're teaching and writing and your scholarly work, um, do you find the same thing? Yeah, I think so, but I I think, you know, I'm a clinical suicidologist, so I'm really concerned about the really extreme, you know, impact of this pandemic, and I think you know, while there are very serious repercussions, like Dr. Martel was saying, you know, the grief and loss issues, the loss of identity, the loss of social connections, oh, not to mention the economic losses that we are suffering. Um, these are all serious, particularly in the suicidology world, 
impact of economics. Uh, there, we do have a pretty well-founded relationship between suicide rates and economic recession, uh, as witnessed in 2008. So that's of great concern. But what we're also seeing, which is very interesting, is how resilient people are. Um, we're seeing people, you know, while they're maybe experiencing some anxiety symptoms, you know, still continuing to experience anxiety, they're actually also coping better. Now, I'm not saying everybody's coping better. I think actually the response to this pandemic has been pretty heterogeneous. So there are some people that are doing better and some people that are doing maybe a little bit worse than expected. So I think it's a mixed bag. How does um, social isolation affect uh, individuals, uh, groups, uh, the people that, that you're seeing, whether or not there's an economic component or just uh, the, the aspect of uh, quarantining and, and working from home when you're not really comfortable or used to doing that? Yeah, I'll just buttress that point um, that was just made. Um, certainly, I think it is a mixed bag. Some of my um, prior um, clients that I worked with who are experiencing social anxiety, for example, right now are, are doing a lot better. Um, but that being said, I, I have seen increases in things like depression. Um, my colleague can probably speak better to suicide rates, I think, have been going up. Well, there's some preliminary evidence to suggest that. Um, and, you know, it, it depends a lot on, you know, family dynamics, um, the specific economic impacts for the particular group and, um, you know, pre-existing um, vulnerabilities uh, as well. Professor Moore? Yeah, I, I think Dr. Motel's target on. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the, their pre-existing functioning. Um, I know there were a couple studies that came out in a European conference a couple weeks ago that indicated people that weren't functioning as well before the pandemic had slight increases in anxiety right before the complete shutdown but actually they began functioning a little bit better as they, as they sort of got used to it and were at home more and able to do things, maybe address things, whether it's family dynamics or whether it's other things they were able to engage in that they weren't able to engage in before. So a lot of it has to do with, I think, pre, how you functioned, you know, before this occurred um, and, and then adjusting, you know, during all the unexpected things that have occurred during this pandemic. There are, um, as you know, many studies, uh, many uh, st uh, statistics out there. Uh, here's some more. You cited some. Um, this is according to uh, U.S. Census uh, data that a third of Americans are feeling severe anxiety. A quarter show signs of depression. Um, a recent poll by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that the pandemic had negatively affected mental health uh, of 56%. Of adults, which is, I, I'm going to just, uh, as a, as someone who's just reading this, think that that's uh, a large percentage. In April, uh, texts to a federal emergency mental health uh, line were up a thousand percent from the year before, and the situation is particularly uh, dire for uh, vulnerable groups, healthcare workers, which we'll talk about. Uh, COVID-19 patients and, and then uh, with severe cases and then people uh, who have family members uh, who they've, they've lost. Um, they all face a significant risk of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, in overburdened intensive care units, delirious patients um, after, uh, and we've heard about this too, seeing chilling hallucinations and um, and as you wrote about, uh, Dr. Moore, 
uh, two overwhelmed emergency medical workers, you wrote about one of them and maybe more, uh, have taken their own life, Mm -hmm. which was um, that in particular, that story that you wrote about, I read the full, um, quite a lengthy piece in uh, Time magazine, uh, this extraordinary uh, uh, woman um, who had uh, worked in the healthcare uh, industry for some time. Uh, she was vibrant and outgoing, and she had friends, and she was an athlete, and all of these things. Um, is there any explanation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, actually, female physicians are in a group of what we consider vulnerable professions. So you've got NFL football players, you've got female prostitutes, you've got female veterinarians and female physicians uh, who all are what we have, what we call having acquired capability to enact lethal self-harm. There's this prevailing theory, it's called the interpersonal theory of suicide. And essentially it says that you can have a couple of things that come together, feeling like you're a burden, feeling like you don't belong. But if you have this acquired capability, almost a courage in the, in the face of death, like you see death every day, you're always combating it, or you're pushing through pain like NFL football players do, or athletes do, um, or you are a victim of violence and, you know, blood and death every day, like a, like a prostitute would be, you know, you probably have this acquired capability. So it's much, a combat veteran would also be another example of somebody who would probably find it very easy to take their, take easier to take their own life because of this acquired capability. There's lots of other more nuanced reasons why female physicians probably are at risk for suicide. So again, it goes back to kind of that pre-existing, um, you know, state, how, how they were functioning uh, before all of this hit. And just because somebody, you know, is super smart and successful and a superior athlete, I mean, you've got all these Olympic, you know, superstars that are now coming out talking about their experiences with suicide ideation in the wake of the Olympics, you know? So that doesn't mean anything. I mean, suicide cuts across demographics and 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 to think that it's it's something that only affects people who are limited is is really missing the mark. Dr. Martel, what can you add to that? I was just going to add that, you know, I think in addition to like pre-existing risk, um, we also need to acknowledge that, you know, even if, you know, you don't have pre-existing risk, there's a number of stressors that are going on right now that I think are hard for even kind of the healthiest individuals to deal with. You know, like I mentioned earlier, the uncertainty is a big one that can lead to increases in anxiety. Um, The social isolation can lead to increases in depression and also suicide. And um, even I read um, that there's initial uh, evidence for increases in overdoses um, since COVID has begun. Um, and, you know, just disruptions to normal schedules, including, you know, economic losses that are huge for some people um, right now. And, um, you know, I think that all that kind of comes together to increase mental health issues, you know, of course, including kind of the worst outcomes like suicides, but also just um, at milder levels, like increases in um, anxiety and depression and things like that. The good news is there's um, there are things you can do to try to combat that. Um, like like I mentioned earlier, there's obviously professional resources like telehealth that you can reach out to right now, even with you know guidelines to be kind of staying at home as much as possible. But there are other things as well, um, including things like. Um, you know, behavioral strategies like trying to stay busy, trying to kind of foster new habits um, that are more amenable to our current time where we're not able to be as social as we might like. I'm trying to find innovative ways to socialize. Um, 
trying to have more family time to the extent that that's possible. Um, and, uh, and, and trying to plan, you know, kind of as best, as best we can. One thing I always recommend to people is self-compassion, which is what it sounds like. Just this idea of trying to, you know, maybe lower your expectations, both in terms of what you're trying to do, but also just in terms of your expectations for yourself, you know, knowing that it's, this is a difficult time for everyone that, um, you know, to be kind to yourself, to be kind to your kids, to be kind to your adolescents who are also experiencing a lot of disappointment right now. Um, and just, you know, get, get through it as best you can without being afraid to ask for help when you need help, because certainly a lot of people will need help right now. Have we learned from other like, uh, catastrophes or moments like this? I'm thinking of, uh, of SARS. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, the trauma that uh, was created out of 9-11 that seemed to place a pall not only in New York, but over the entire nation and, and, and the world, for that matter. Um, Dr. Moore, you also mentioned the economic stressors of uh, the 2008 uh, recession, for example. So leaving the economics uh, out of it, um, or is this a, a standalone global pandemic that we haven't seen, I don't think you, you would know, since 1918 um, in, in the health area? Um, so can you go all the way back to the way the world was in 1918 and the way we are trying to handle, I mean, let's admit, uh, this is much more than a flu epidemic that we meet and greet every fall. So what, what have we learned from those other incidences? Or is this something that you, uh, as mental health professionals, are having to, to, to almost begin again with uh, how to treat this? You know, I, I don't know that I can answer that question because I think we just don't know yet. Um, I think there's going to be so much to learn from this. Um, I mean, I think it's, you know, I mentioned the SARS um, outbreak and the PTSD created from SARS. And, you know, we certainly know that people, you know, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 were really traumatized. It changed people's lives. But, you know, six months after 9-11, studies that were done in New York showed that the people who are actually more resilient were those who had social support. Now, that's the difference between now and then. The isolation is going to make it more difficult for that kind of social support that's going to really um, predict the resilience of individuals. And that's where I'm most concerned, along with the economic downturn, uh, the economic implications of this. But, you know, I also have enormous faith in the resilience, particularly of American people, we are incredibly resilient. And also, I believe that people learn from these traumatic experiences. You know, there are a lot of people that we are serving in EKU psychology clinics. So I'm a clinical supervisor there, and I supervise all the suicide-focused treatment cases. And so we've got a handful of, of kids who, university students who had to go home, and they were suicidal while they were on campus. They went home, and they actually functioned better. Some uh, had went home, they went right back into kind of the frying pan, these very chaotic home environments, you know, where everybody's all up in their business. And then they, of course, had all these like existential issues, like, you know, am I going to graduate? Is life ever going to be normal again? And they did a little bit worse. So I just think there's so much from this we're going to learn, but I don't know that we, we can know that yet. I would just say that, um, you know, I think the medical field surely has come a long way since 
1918. So, and I think the fast tracking of some of the vaccine trials, I speak to that, although that's not my area really. Um, I will say, I think, you know, a lot has, a lot is different. Um, I mean, the nice thing is we do have these really well-validated mental health treatments at University of Kentucky. We also have an in-house clinic, um, the Psychological Services Center on campus that offers telehealth services at reduced uh, rates um, for people if they need them. So that's an improvement. The other thing I'll say is, um, you know, while there's obviously like lots of very challenging pieces to what's going on right now, um, which is what we've been focusing on. I do think some of the things that have changed, namely, uh, you know, us being in the digital era now, in some ways uh, could actually lead to, I think, fast tracking a lot of improvements. Um, Just for example, you know, us doing this remotely right now, um, having some of these new technologies like Zoom conferencing that will make work more accessible to people who historically maybe for just because of disabilities or other things have not been able to access those things. Um, I, I personally am not the most techn- technologically savvy person, but I've been kind of forced to use new technologies myself, like Instacart for grocery shopping. Um, I've been doing um, ha- like FaceTiming with my father who's in a nursing home. You know, I've been doing Zoom happy hours with students and, and, and colleagues and um, also um roommates that I haven't seen in years. Um, in fact, you know, I've been in touch with people I haven't been in touch with in years, frankly. Um, so I, I do think that there will be some positives that come out of this in the sense of people being more connected in more innovative ways um, that are kind of thrust into it, maybe a little bit against their wishes because of the current situation. Um, I think that that's something that will be really positive. And my hope is that I think one of the things that the pandemic has really highlighted is the social disparities course, there's also been a lot of kind of current events that have highlighted that as well, but just the fact that this pandemic is not impacting people equally. And I'm hopeful that as a society, we will, we, we can see that clearly right now and that we will take action to rectify that. The other um, part of what we've been dealing with, as you just uh, alluded to, uh, the, the, the social uh, part of it when it comes to the uh, social injustice, uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, uh, now being called the moment uh, all across the country, cities that are still dealing with it um, in Kentucky as well as uh, on the on the West Coast is is that a um, is that a, a factor that is that is going to in some way uh, confuse the data that might come out of this? That uh, at at a, at a time when we were so focused on COVID and then this very grave. Uh, social ill was foisted upon us in a way that we it was distracting, which is maybe a good thing. But then again, there is no conclusion to that at the moment. There still seems to be uh, the political uh, upheaval that it has caused. So, h- how does how does the social justice movement uh, play into uh, the feelings that that people have that are watching uh, or or participating that are actually there? Is it, is it a positive or a negative? I think there certainly can be aspects of both. Um, you know, in some ways it, I think increases polarization. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping that it will ultimately be a catalyst, um, for initiating change. Yeah. Yeah. It's been actually a positive. I know in my department, culturally, societally, I'm not certain. I think the jury's still out on that. But I know that in terms of uh, initiating conversations within our clinical psychology doctoral program in our communities at EKU, it's actually been 
a real a real bonus. We've been able to talk about things that were kind of beneath the surface that we never really talked about, never really addressed or broached. I think it's actually going to make the whole crop of students we have better clinicians as a result of this. So, in what way? Oh, I think they're more aware of white privilege and injustice, and um, and just uh, and also the need, frankly, for clinicians of color. You know, we're we're going to be doing probably things not differently because we've always been sensitive to that um, particular issue when it comes to admissions. But I think we're going to make sure that you know we are we're we're you know definitely being more intentional in terms of recruiting individuals you know of color. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'll just say at the level of the field too, there's been a lot of, I think very recent, and I don't think it's a coincidence um, about how we can improve admissions to make sure we are recruiting more diverse classes, whether that's getting rid of standardized testing, like the GREs has been a big focus for discussion. Um, and, and yeah, I totally agree. I think our students are now a lot more sensitized to it as well. Um, and I'm hoping that even at lower levels, which seems to be a big part of the, the problem, um, that that will be true as well. And it will inspire more people to go into this area. Both of you are in the university um, setting, and uh, there's been so much uh, this summer leading up to the planning for opening up schools again, having uh, students, faculty, uh, staff on campus uh, versus uh, remotely or a hybrid uh, model. It seems like to me that that in the reports that we see uh, coming out of uh, all schools, that there's still quite a bit unknown or undecided or uh, when schools are going to start in less than a month it is uh, what what does that create for for you as uh, teaching professors as the students uh, is there any way to to make that a positive or are there precautions uh, that you can take almost every place you turn you want to do best for individuals and for the population. Uh, is is that giving some uh, comfort to people who are going to be back on campus? I'll just say it's hard, <laughs> especially as a parent. I have two teenagers and a toddler. So, yeah, it's a little hard to plan when you don't even know what they're going to be doing. Um, and so what does it know, create in your own mind? If you, if you are... Uh, as a professional having to deal with this, yet you have questions too. What, how do you respond? Right. I mean, it's forced me to reflect a lot on, you know, strategies for coping with uncertainty, which is something I talk with a lot of people about in therapy. Like, you know, what can you do um, to cope with those kinds of things? And like I alluded to before, there's some behavioral things you can do, like being active, trying to stay as much on a schedule as possible, uh, finding hobbies that, you know, you can do throughout. But there's also some cognitive things you can do, like the worst, like what's the worst that will happen? I'll be able to get through it. Um, You know, kind of things will get better. You may not know when, but Um, those kinds of things as well, which I have to say, I'm practicing all of those things myself right now, as much as is possible, as well as that self-compassion piece where, you know, I'm irritable with my kid and have to basically apologize because it's really not their fault that everything is just up in the air right now. Um, I try to do the make lemonade out of lemons thing as much as possible. So, I mean, my hope is that this will again lead to some innovation in terms of teaching and pedagogy, uh, like better practices in terms of um, making the classroom more accessible, leading to kind of more innovative use of media in the classroom. That being said, um, there's 
data to back this up as well. It's not just my opinion, I think, but you know, it is also true that remote learning is it's okay, especially for older individuals. So I think the data suggests teenagers and above can benefit, but um, there's certainly like more benefits from in-person learning, especially for younger kids and kids who have learning problems. So again, I think the risk is this is going to exacerbate pre-existing disparities, especially for you know younger kids who struggle already. Um, but my hope is that again, this will lead us to develop better strategies for dealing with it. It'll lead to innovations in the classroom that will be helpful and that will try to level the playing field. Yeah. You know, I think also as a professor, I'm trying to model good coping and good um, attitudes toward my students. I am a traditional, you know, I like being in the classroom. I like face-to-face. I like face-to-face therapy. I like face-to-face instruction. (laughs) So I really identify with Dr. Martell saying she's having to use all these behavioral strategies, cognitive strategies on herself. I'm definitely engaging in them as well because um, I would resist uh, this kind of this kind of teaching and this kind of learning. But I've had to, you know, you can teach an old dog new tricks for sure because I'm learning how to, you know, become a, a you know a remote instructor. And I'm teaching classes that I would prefer to teach in person. I'm teaching a suicide class to psychology seniors, and I'm teaching a positive psychology class, both of which, for different reasons, I would prefer to teach in person. But I'm going to teach them online and. You know, it's just part of what we're doing to keep people safe, to adapt to this very uncertain, very precarious situation we're in, and it's not going to last forever. So I, I'm in I'm in her boat. I'm making lemonade out of lemons. Uh, Dr. Moore, you, you mentioned earlier, and I'm sure um, uh, we've talked about the, the younger generation, and uh, Dr. Martell, I think that, that is a part of your, your practice. Uh, uh, when you're dealing and in, in fact, you're living with them. So uh, that, that you, you have your, your test tube right there at home. Um, is it the, um, I have a, I have a four-year-old grandson, a grandchild who's been away from his uh, daycare facility for five months. Uh, he only saw one of his little friends uh, one time uh, a few weeks ago and they were, the parents were very aware of uh, keeping them apart or keeping them away from the adults and that, that sort of thing. So from a four-year-old to a 14-year-old to a, a, a 24-year-old, um, who, who is most, are, are, I've read that the, the grandchild, thank goodness, is probably not going to be affected uh, as much as the, the middle schooler or the 14-year-old. And then on up into the older. But both of you talk a little bit about that, about the age group. And, and then again, what can you do for children who've been isolated from their friends and not uh, able to, to, to get out that much, or certainly not in a school environment? Although kids, uh, the older ones, the 14-year-olds, um, I see them go past my window on the street, have found a way to get together and ride their bikes and that sort of thing. So what, what going forward, uh, if we're in this global pandemic for another six months. What, what What's your advice? Well, I'll just say, I don't think there's any data, at, at least at this point that I'm aware of, that speaks clearly to who's kind of, what age group is most vulnerable. I will say the challenges are different at different ages. Like your um, uh, four-year-old grandchild's almost the same age as my toddler. She's three and a half. And um, certainly like the social, the missed social opportunities are big in that age group. So, you know, we've, it sounds like similar to your experience, we've been trying to find innovative ways to make that happen. 
um, for her. Um, the challenges with teenagers are obviously a little are different, but yet also the same. I mean, it's also, there's a big social piece there for, for that group as well. Um, some of the same strategies work, trying again to be innovative about helping them kind of get that need met as best you can, knowing that you won't really fully satisfy that need as long as this is going on. Um, but work, you know, obviously how you work with those two groups is very different. Um, and I will say about both groups, I mean, kids are, you know, we do know this from you know, PTSD work in, in kids um, that, you know, they are a lot more resilient than you would uh, necessarily think. So I think as long as the parents can kind of do what we call good enough parenting um, and kind of keep it as good as possible, I mean, they will, I think, get through it and and it, it shouldn't have any lasting impacts as long as you're kind of doing what you can to manage it. That being said, there's obviously groups where, you know, for economic or mental health reasons are really struggling to do that. Yeah. I don't know that I have anything to add to that. I work with adults primarily, and Dr. Martell is most certainly personally and professionally better situated to address uh, children and adolescents. But I would say I really, I feel very deeply for my friends who have tweens or adolescents, you know, and they're really trying to keep their tweens or their adolescents safe. And particularly if they've got older parents, then they're also wanting to stay in contact with, you know, they have to make decisions. Do I let my daughter go to a slumber party or do I see my parents this weekend, you know? And and, and then it becomes, you know, sort of um, just a real difficult choice um, and making, you know, having people make decisions, uh, you know, do I allow my child to be a child or a, a teenager or do I, do I continue seeing my parents? And so I just think that there's a, you know, I, I, I feel for them greatly. And I think it's just really important to find what works, you know, for that particular, that's developmentally appropriate for you know, that child and, and then just stay flexible and uh, again, I think a lot of it has to do with modeling attitudes and coping and all of that stuff. Does the um, the hope and the science behind a, a vaccine and when it might be available, does it help uh, us or does it hurt us in a way that there seems to be, again, like so many um, things that we're dealing with, different opinions about when it's going to be ready? Uh, it's being perfected now for use in November. Oh, it's going to be the end of 2021. I think I heard just this week. Uh, does the vaccine give people hope or does it confuse the issue, uh, Dr. Moore? You know, I, I think it's a matter of weighing sort of all these expectations and news reports with what's actually going on and just and just suspending judgment for a while. I mean, I find it very hopeful when I hear there might be a vaccine available in November, but I also recognize you know, that sometimes, you know, medicines have been recommended before and they're not effective. You know, we're now seeing through clinical trials are not effective. So I think we just have to suspend judgment and kind of, Dr. Martell, Martell said earlier, lower expectations. That might be the way to go even when it, when it comes to vaccines. Yeah. I mean, I personally would like the, the, the scientific community take this as an opportunity to improve their messaging because I, I certainly find the mixed messaging and the misinformation that is propagated through social media to be confusing, even as someone who can kind of sort through it better than most people. So, um, you know, I'd like to see the messaging improve because I think even, you know, even knowing kind of where it's coming from, this just uncertainty that we just don't know and we're learning as we go. It's, I understand people finding it really challenging and being skeptical about believing the scientific community about certain things. And I'd like to see us do a better job. Don't, don't you find it uh, frustrating, if not um, more than just that, uh, downright uh, angry, 
when, um, and this just happened to come up yesterday when there was a story about um, false information that's being put out there. That I mean, it's being put out there on purpose by websites and by uh, in social media that that are misleading. It's almost like that uh, individuals that get up um, in the morning and say, "Today I'm going to hate someone." I can't imagine someone getting up and saying, "Today I'm going to mislead uh, on my website and, and steer people in the wrong direction." That um, that drinking uh, Clorox is going to be uh, helpful to you and, and, and produce some false sign. What, what is in someone's psyche that, that allows them to do that? Just the, the mere attention they're getting on their website? Well, I, I think sometimes it's not ill-intentioned. I mean, you know, there's the theory of cognitive dissonance where, I mean, we as humans are really bad about kind of holding conflicting information um, in our mind at the same time. And there's also, um, biases to seek out information that confirms your pre-existing views. And I think that's the trap a lot of people are falling into. And I do think social media and some of the partisan news outlets, not to name names, but including like, for example, Fox, uh, feed into that because when you, and, and on the other side, MSNBC, you know, is another example. Um, Cause I think that people who really want to support whatever viewpoint they come into, it can find that, you know, it's called a confirmation bias can find that information that confirms what they already think. Um, and then they just, they don't really question it critically. Um, and a lot of people don't have the training to question it critically. So I think some of these like bad actors or whatever, some of them are doing it on purpose, but I, I like to think that's the minority. I think some of them are just falling into these habits of like doing anything to kind of confirm their pre-existing um, opinions. And I think some of the media quote unquote advances where we have these partisan news outlets, we have social media that allows us to surround ourselves with people that think the same we do are exacerbating those problems, which I think is a part of the reason we're seeing so much of this polarization, which has certainly played into um, what's going on in terms of how the pandemic's been handled. And I'm hoping that the, you know, this will highlight those problems and we can try to find some ways to resolve them. But obviously, I mean, some of these things are our own kind of human ingrained biases. So it's not going to be easy to resolve these issues. Dr. Moore, I'll give you the last word on that. Um, uh, is there some some light at the end of the tunnel, regardless of the information that we're receiving? You know, I think it's, I, I completely agree with everything Dr. Martell said. I don't think I can say, say it any better, but I do also think it's the downside of the First Amendment and a free press and all the information, the technology we have, the instant information we can get to. It's just the downside of that. And so, you know, with the incredible freedoms we have, we also sometimes have negatives and people that take advantage and play sport with those. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you both for uh, an interesting discussion on something that we're uh, hopefully um, close to the other side of, but maybe we're only in the middle of it. I know both of you are maybe not anxiously uh, looking for school to begin soon and uh, to begin your your teaching as well as what you're seeing in your practice. Um, Let's trust and hope uh, that uh, we're um, looking at our better angels and that uh, things will uh, continue to improve and we'll we'll be better rather than uh, worse uh, soon. So uh, thank you both. I appreciate your input on today's version of Think Humanities podcast. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. 
Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.